from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. Checking out our conversation today in which we explore, as we do every week, all those things related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our society, and your private self, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and of the Wharton Leadership Program. Now, I run a management consulting and training company. It's called Total Leadership. And if you visit totalleadership.org, you can find information on how we help people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of life while improving performance in all of them. Yes, it can be done. And my guest today is going to help us understand further how that can be done. Big news before we get into the conversation today, I've just released an audio course based on Total Leadership. It's called Four Way Wins. It's on Himalaya Learning, an audio learning platform with an extensive library of great courses. You want to listen to this course and others like it, just go to Himalaya.com slash wins and enter promo code wins at checkout to get your first 14 days free. I hope to see you there. Well, on this show, uh, for those of you who've been listening these eight years plus, you know that we've discussed uh, meditation and mindfulness quite a few times, but not everybody talks about them as tools that can change the way we do business. My guest today has written a book in which she explains that they're all part of a new way for us to lead a better, more equitable world. Latha Punamali is an associate professor and chair of the Faculty of Management and university fellow at the New School in New York City, my hometown. The full name of her new book is Expansive Leadership, Cultivating Mindfulness to Lead Self and Others in a Changing World. Lata, welcome to Work and Life. Thank you, Stu. Thank you for having me. And, uh, you know, it's obviously a great pleasure to uh, actually have a conversation with you, especially uh, as someone that has uh, been working in the leadership space and looking up to your work for a long time in uh, broadening the scope of leadership and leadership development. Well, uh, it's great to have you here, and I'm, I appreciate you taking the time to, to speak with us. Um, let me tell folks a little bit more about you before we get into it, shall we? Latha um, <clears throat> created the Management and Social Justice Conversation Series that she hosts at the New School, and she serves as the editor-in-chief of the Society of Advancement of Management's Advanced Management Journal. She's also a tech entrepreneur. She co-founded InMed Prognostics, a neuroscience AI venture that brings affordable and accessible brain health tools to underserved markets. I hope we get to talk about that today too, Latha. Um, let's, let's jump into the conversation though and, and hear about the big ideas uh, that you are bringing to the world. Um, you describe in your book, Expansive Leadership, an approach to leadership that's based on mindfulness, on relationships, on morality. Can you just give us a brief explanation of, of what you mean uh, by this approach, expansive leadership, and then we'll get into how we can actually develop this quality or these qualities in leaders in the real world. Sure. Uh, thank you. Uh, so, just to kind of give a background, uh, I have been a personal mindfulness practitioner for a very long time, and I found it extremely useful um, in, a, in a sense of, uh, you know, especially I'm a pretty emotional late bloomer. And so this was a very helpful way for me to develop this uh, in the moment awareness of my own emotions. Hang on a second. Uh, so you said you're an emotional late bloomer. I've never heard that expression. Can you? <laughs> Just briefly describe what you mean by that before continuing with your explanation. Yes, uh, by which I mean that it, I was, uh, I just want to step back and tell you a little story. Okay. I was, uh, I think about 17 or 18 in my college first year in India. And I was always, uh, it, it was very uncommon for, uh, you know, at that age to work while you're in college, because there are not that many jobs available for a lot of people in India. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And 
So I went to this job interview with the dentist. And uh, it's just like a front office, you know, issuing tokens and monitoring patients. And the dentist uh, was very impressed with my academic uh, uh, accomplishments. And he was very impressed with my communication skills. And he said, and plus I've always held some leadership roles. And so he's like, well, this is great. Like, you know, I'd love to hire you, but I have one question. I said, yes, sure. Uh, he asked me. Uh, did, uh, you know, say, imagine you're handling this crowd and people are getting tokens and they need to be seated and led uh, into the dentist's office. He said, what if somebody comes in severe pain? They come in with a lot of, like, a pain. Severe pain, okay. yes. Mm -hmm. yep. And I said, um, well, I will give them a token. Give and them a token. In other words, give them a place in line to wait until... Yes until they are able to see you when you are ready for them. Yes. Okay. And um, he said, okay, because he really wanted to hire me. He said, okay, what if their attendant or family member or somebody, they come and tell you like, you know, he's really in pain. Like, can you squeeze in? And I'm such a rule person. And so I said, uh, but, 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 you know, the, there is a line. There are people that came before you and it's not like really fair to uh, send them, uh, send you in while they were waiting. And uh, he asked me again. And of course I did not get the job. And you did not get the job because you demonstrated a lack of compassion, I suppose. Exactly. And then, you know, he said, uh, you know, you're not a really good fit. And I did not kind of understand what that meant. And I just thought, hmm, okay, <laughs> something happened. <laughs> I did not get the job. Something um, happened. And so that is what I mean by when I say I'm an emotionally bloomer, as in like my emotional intelligence uh, was developed in a much more intentional way because I found that uh, there were things that I did not get and it was not helpful to me or others not to get those things. And then I, I, I believe that uh, you know, mindfulness practice has definitely helped me uh, develop that uh, capacity for emotional intelligence and compassion and empathy and understanding and uh, you know, interpersonal uh, mindfulness aspects and things like that. And so that's kind of what I meant by emotional late bloomer. I see. I see. So thank you. Uh, I'm glad I'm glad we got to that because that helps to helps to me to understand and our listeners to understand uh, at least a part of why this is important to you and your your personal motivation for pursuing a model of leadership that is uh, that uses the tools of mindfulness uh, to develop uh, a compassionate approach to um, making the world a better place. So um, tell us more about what, what the essence of your leadership approach is all about. And, th and then we'll get into how it works in terms of how you help people to cultivate these qualities. Mm -hmm. uh, so primarily, uh, my model moves leadership development um, a bit farther than competency development, uh, because a lot of competency development models are based on behavioral approaches, and uh, which is almost always like, okay, do this so other people can see you do this. And uh, so you will come across as empathetic, uh, or you will come across as uh, taking initiative, or you will come across as uh, whatever that uh, particular competency is. And one of the things that I have been kind of looking at uh, you know, is that, okay, does it really lead to an inner transformation? Uh, that do people really change inside about how they cultivate uh, these uh, emotional and social intelligence when we look at it from a competency approach? And I think that's very helpful, uh, but I think that's not sufficient, especially uh, because um, emotional intelligence can be really a dangerous tool in the hands of people who are, uh, who know how to manipulate people. And uh, uh, so, so that's kind of one of the drivers for me to look at, okay, how do we then look at inner transformation? And uh, so the book really focuses, the model focuses on the inner transformation. And the other piece is that it also reframes mindfulness to its original roots. 
which is, uh, you know, in the most recent times, whenever mindfulness has been adopted as a leadership development framework, it's always self-based. I don't mean like self-centered, but a self-based. Like, you know, I can be more uh, resilient, which is very important. I can be more productive. I can be more attentive. I can be more focused. But mindfulness at the core of it, uh, especially if you don't want to do the spiritual bypass, uh, is about understanding that we are all one, that we are part of an interconnected kind of a whole. And when we start focusing purely on self-oriented outcomes, we do a spiritual bypass and uh, also in that process, uh, truncate the person's development that they, they could actually go way beyond that if they start looking at what is my location? What is my identity? How do I connect with the world? How do I belong in the world? And so a spiritual bypass then is, uh, if I have it right, you, you've, you've mentioned that a couple of times. You want to avoid the spiritual bypass, which I understand as somehow ignoring the interconnectedness, the, uh, the, the wholeness of our universe and one's place in it. Do mm-hmm. I have that right or is it, is it something more than that or different than that? Uh, it is definitely, uh, you have that right, yes. And, uh, and, and most of the Eastern mindfulness traditions really operate from that perspective. And when uh, mindfulness practice is kind of co-opted and appropriated, uh, independent of the moral context and, and the overall social uh, understanding of how world works, and then you basically take one piece and put it somewhere else, Uh, And so then you don't, A, get the whole thing, and B, um, you are literally appropriating something uh, and and letting everything else uh, out of the picture. So when you say appropriating something, what is it that is appropriated and what is ignored or or excluded or somehow denigrated or not valued? Uh, One, of course, uh, you you know, I, I cite this in my book. Um, and there are people in the mindfulness research space that talk about, they call it, uh, this particularly one, Ron Purser, uh, he calls it the mindfulness, uh, which is that mindfulness movement, uh, which I think the Time magazine had an issue called mindfulness revolution, uh, makes it uh, completely serve capitalism to silence people to accept where you are and uh, not question things about uh, your organization and organizational choices and the injustice around you. And so if you're focused on using mindfulness to alleviate one's own personal suffering, and if it stops there, you then start looking away from other people's suffering. And if you don't look away, if you start looking away from other people's suffering, how do you take note of injustices? And especially if it's happening in, uh, you know, well-privileged uh, kind of spaces, then there is really no need for them to look at. So which means that, you know, Southern California or California as a whole can have like, you know, like miles and miles of homeless encampment while creating the richest probably, uh, you know, human community in, in the history. And so both can coexist while one remains blind uh, to the other, while Google can have like search inside yourself and mindfulness programs. And again, like, you know, it's not a denigration of any of these. Uh, I think people are trying and this is wonderful that people are trying. And uh, and one of my, you know, tenets is basically that, you know, I demand accountability for change, but I also give grace because if for the if I was in their shoes, I have no idea what I would be doing. Mm. And so, which means that understanding that, uh, you you know, people can be blind to some things and it's important for us to keep throwing light on it and showing that. And so that's kind of what I mean by when I say what appropriation um, loses. Uh, And it also, I think it truncates genuine personal growth and spiritual development for a person uh, if it is... Hang on a second. Let, let me just remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I'm speaking to management and social justice thought leader Latha Punamali about her book, Expansive Leadership, Cultivating Mindfulness to Lead Self and Others in a Changing World. Uh, Latha, thank you uh, 
and sorry for that interruption, please, uh, please continue about uh, how the exclusion of the moral dimension uh, is, is, uh, is a detriment to the individual, perhaps ironically. Absolutely, because I think, you know, if all of us are not well, uh, that affects all of us, right? And uh, if it means like we are blind to other people's uh, suffering or uh, difficulties or challenges right in our back door or somewhere else that we cannot see, which is like thousands of miles away, Mm -hmm. then we are truncating everybody's growth and development. Mm -hmm. And I I, I think that this is a moment in time where there is a door open and uh, where we can, the leaders can step up and redefine their roles differently. And I recently had an article uh, in Fast Company that I wrote as part of this book promotion work is that, uh, you know, I I call it like, let justice be your legacy. If the CEOs Mm -hmm. uh, want to, take their legacy moving forward at this time, given everything that's going on in the world and the pandemic that's thrown light on the fact that um, the world's underprivileged, and especially in the US, we have seen it, uh, carry a far larger, disproportionately large burden for the rest of us in terms of whether it's frontline workers uh, or Uber delivery, uh, people that actually put themselves out and, and, and most of the time, obviously, in this country, it is tied, uh, class is tied with race. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, globally, definitely class is tied with gender. Uh, and so, which means that underprivileged people um, are struggling. And uh, the CEOs, if they are 1% of 1%, I say, hey, you know, step up and choose a different legacy. Mm-hmm. Well, the pandemic surely has revealed uh, major fault lines uh, in our world, in our society, in our economy. Uh, those of us like you and me who are fortunate uh, to be able to work in safety uh, mm-hmm. at home, uh, I assume this is true for you, um, have relied on those who are on the front lines, who are at, at risk, packaging and delivering our necessities, providing health care, uh, so much more, as you say, and this divide does indeed fall along uh, demographic lines, race, uh, socioeconomic status, gender, other fault lines. So, yes, this period in our nation's history has been marked by, among other things, a kind of reawakening to uh, mm-hmm. the injustices, particularly racial injustice in in all spheres of our society and especially in the economy, but you have an optimistic view as I read it um, about what you refer to as tribal affiliations. So um, can you say more about how you see this inflection point and how it, how it is affecting uh, our various communities within, within our society? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I uh, thank you for, uh, you know, asking that question because I could have just talked about the context forever. <laughs> so uh, so with the, with what I mean by tribal is I think that, you know, I do pay a great deal of respect and regard for so much work that has happened in the positive organizational psychology and uh, positive organizational literature uh, in leadership and things like that. Um, but, I, but my argument is that even that is tribal. And people get shocked when I say that because that is seen as such a big uh, step. And I think it is a very big step from a very uh, kind of a Tayloristic notions of scientific management type of uh, uh, model to looking at organizations as places of flourishing, which is actually wonderful. Places but, of human flourishing. And that, that is a, a relatively new idea. It's one that I learned at the University of Michigan in the early 1980s. But it, and it was part of a, a movement that really began to flourish in the late 50s and 60s, but has uh, in recent decades uh, become uh, an, a very important uh, aspect of the, the many rivers that flow together in the fields of leadership and organization studies of which you and I are, are both part. So yes, it has, it has become a dominant uh, voice 
Mm-hmm. However, you are saying it's it's still not enough. And 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 why is that? What what is missing uh, from from this perspective that that you that you want to see somehow reimagined? Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, he, you know, the tribe is what we all grew up in. Right. Uh, in, in terms of not just like we as you and me, but as a human race that we've always stayed in tribes, we've cooperated within tribes and uh, we have battled against tribes. And, and you know, in today in the modern world tribe, uh, we have like you and I are organizational theorists or organizational behavioral theorists. And that's a kind of a bit of a tribe that, you know, we have a common language. And, uh, you, you know, the minute I say human flourishing and you can talk about the history of it and when you got exposed to it and how that's moved. And so that becomes a kind of a modern day tribe. Or it could be like. I don't know, Star Wars fans are like a big tribe or, right, or a sports uh, fans of a particular uh, team or uh, their own tribes or alumni associations or alumni of universities. They are like, obviously, like, you know, we definitely cultivate them as tribes uh, so that we have the sound base uh, of financial viability over the, for a long period of time. And, and we are, as academics, uh, you know, spreading the message. And so in that context, if an organizational boundary determines who our people are, right, and then I think that is divisive, uh, right? An organization has, which, which is kind of the, uh, the irony of working in a capitalistic uh, or a late capitalistic society, right, which is that leaders really do have strong boundaries uh, around what and what they cannot do in an organizational context, because we still operate in a uh, not necessarily profit only mode. And I think there's definitely a shift in that, but a profit first mode. So how, do, how then do tribal affiliations uh, that we all share, uh, that we all have, I mean, uh, and, and how, how do you see them as um, contributing to the betterment of, uh, of human welfare and, and progress over time? I, uh, one is that I think tribal affiliation contributes um, to a certain degree, which is it fosters cooperation. Mm. Uh, it builds trust. Within. Uh, within. Within the tribe. Exactly. Yes. Right? So, but if we have to transcend the tribe, and which is kind of what I call the expansive uh, identity, right? Which is dependent on how we define ourselves, like how we define our identity. And at one level, uh, we can define it as very individual. It's a very personal identity. And a lot of times then we take a perspective of like me against the world. Uh, So we look at everything in a transactional way, in a, uh, in a very boundary setting way, in a very reactive way. And then you have what I call the interpersonal self, which is that how am I operating in individual interpersonal relationship context? And then the third one I call is the tribal one. And the fourth one, which I call is the universal self or the interdependent self, which is kind of where we lose some of these, uh, you know, how do we lead beyond the tribe? How do we lead beyond ego and, and move beyond the tribe? And so, for example, like, you know, say an organization has uh, a company that has its shareholders and other, uh, you know, internal stakeholders like employees that it's taking care of really well, uh, but it is causing damage to the environment or the community in some way. And if you're only looking at internal stakeholders and you define the organization uh, in a legalistic way, and say that people that belong to this organization are more important than ones that don't belong to this organization. And, but that is complex, right? It's, it's, it's difficult, which is that, uh, you know, as a, as a founder of a company and a CEO of a startup, I really understand what it also means to pay bills, uh, which means that I have to keep finances flowing. And I understand the pressure that uh, companies are under. But how much profit is enough profit? Who do we take into consideration when we make decisions? 
And uh, how do we actually challenge some of these uh, reified understandings of growth that you need endless growth, you need endless profit, you need endless kind of colonization of the world uh, in new- and Wait, I'm sorry, can you repeat what you just said? Coloniz said colonization, colonization of the world? Yeah, uh, right? I mean, a multinational company colonizes the world uh, in its own way. Mm -hmm. While, of course, like, you know, I'm not saying that it's not delivering products or services or quality of life mm -hmm. or anything. Mm -hmm. But then how do we take these complexities into our decision-making process? How do you as a leader, if you are developing and operating from the universal self notions, understand that if you're hurting a community, that is far away from you, or you're hurting a community in which your organization is situated, you're also hurting yourself, you're hurting your organization, you're hurting your people, you're hurting the world. Hang on to that idea, Latha. Uh, we, we're going to have to take a short break here. And uh, when we come back, I, I wanna pick up this idea of an expansive leadership that accounts for the needs and interests of those beyond uh, the tribe, the organization, because that is a great tension and is one that has bedeviled philosophers uh, and political scientists and economists and sociologists and psychologists for a long time. And, and you've got a way of addressing that, that we're going to be talking about in the second half. So please do stay with us, folks. I'll be continuing my conversation with Latha Punamali in just a minute. I am Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Sirius XM 132. Stay with us. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. I'm really glad you're here. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project, the Wharton Leadership Program, and founder of Total Leadership a management consulting and training company dedicated to helping people and organizations find harmony among the different parts of their lives while improving performance in all of them. And uh, Latha Punamali is kind of a soul sister. She's doing something very similar. Uh, and we're exploring her approach in expansive leadership, her new book. Uh, Latha is an associate professor and university fellow at the New School in New York City. Um, Latha, let's, let's get further into the ideas in expansive leadership and the month-long program that you have developed for helping people to cultivate an expansive leadership uh, life. How do you do it? What's the essence of the method? So the essence of method uh, is actually... Um, I take people through two different arcs of exploration. Um, one is basically at a personal level, getting people exposed to different kinds of contemplative and mindfulness methods. So because some people react to some methods favorably or unfavorably, depending on their personal history and preference and things like that. So we get exposed to a whole range of uh, contemplative methodologies from like a traditional breath method to, uh, you know, drawing and uh, using other forms and uh, uh, emotions and kind of really like, you know, mindfulness methodologies that are two critical uh, approaches. One is the focus mindfulness which is kind of what we think of as usually mindfulness, like we say a mantra, like, a, you know, like everybody's saying Om or whatever. And I say that, no, that mantra can be your favorite person's name. It doesn't matter. It's just like a tool for you to kind of stop the wandering and come back to one thing. And so that develops- the wandering, the never ending <laughs> wandering. Focus. And then the second is actually the open awareness, which is being alive to things. So you're using all your sensory inputs, like whether it's a smell and, uh, you know, eyes and listening and skin is like, obviously skin is the largest organ and we don't remember that it's our largest organ. 
but that is what separates us from the world and that is what feeds all the inputs to us so so the open awareness and and so we expose that so that is kind of like a kind of like you develop like a buffet of options that people can use and uh, some of my participants like for example like you know a body scan and i particularly developed something called bring, bringing it back to your body uh, which is kind of like you know if you are in a stressful or anxious or some mode that is getting you spinning out of control can we just use our body to come back and because this is like the only home we have and so how do we actually use this and uh, come back to our body and uh, some of them really like that and some of them kind of like and and the other piece uh, is that um, uh, i actually walked them through these methods methods are also linked to the four levels of identity that i talked about mm-hmm. what is your personal self what is your interpersonal self what is your tribal or communal self mm-hmm. and what is your universal self and so kind of moving this journey of mindfulness from just and a lot of people do come in for the personal self like you know like people come to this because they want to be more resilient or they are curious or they want to explore something within themselves or they want to do better in exams <laughs> multiple ways they come in and or they have some health issues and they want to kind of like you know reduce some stress and so there's relaxation and stress and personal goals are like a starting point but what i do is that i help them move beyond that using contemplative as a methodology or pedagogy or like tools but moving them from individual to interpersonal to systemic and then reintegrating it back uh, to the individual because i think that how do you do that can you give an example of 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 in brief uh sure. what's what what that journey might look like for someone Yes, uh, you know, for instance, uh, one of the you know really simple question that keeps coming at every level is like, who are you, right? Who are you? And uh, it's actually a great tool to ask, like, like who are you to? Uh, and I'm asking myself that question every day. Exactly, right? <laughs> and so, and so we we kind of do that, but then I also use some thought experiments, uh, which is like, okay. uh if whatever you define as the core part of your identity so i asked them to do sometimes a counterfactual thought experiment and this is like i was running this uh, like doing an event for jet blue airlines and we did this and i asked them like what if the core of you your identity is not you or if that was never part of you what would it look like because then you are moving to a systemic analysis of like okay what is my intersectional awareness so i've had like for instance like black women who come and tell me like i i can answer the question because i don't make the determination i walk into a room i am a black woman and that's an identity that others give me not just i give myself and uh, so it's a kind of a triggering uh, the question of uh, you know really challenging um, ourselves to a uh, develop this intersectional awareness uh, mm. of who i am in an any given context and especially as an immigrant for example for me i am more indian in the us than in india right because i'm not that different there i'm like other billion and a half people and we all look the right. same and your, your indian attributes are, are more salient here because they're different than the majority exactly and mm-hmm. so kind of questioning those things and questioning our own histories and the reason why i think mindfulness is a good methodology for this mm. because these are difficult questions too they are very difficult questions for people to handle right like you know because then what happens especially in the current climate uh many of these identity related questions a become demographic identities mm. uh and uh, ethnic identities and uh, then almost always uh you have either guilt shame and things like that uh, which come out of this so how do you help people to address this question um you know and it's a question that's been around for forever i mm-hmm. i'm i'm reading uh shakespeare these days and uh the first line of hamlet one of his great plays 
is spoken by an officer to another one. And he asks, who's there? Which is the essential question that we're asking here. Who is there? Mm-hmm. Who is it? Who are you? Um, what do you represent? Um, what is your intention? What is your purpose? How, how do you help people to, to grow in their capacity to address that question in a way that um, makes them more effective as leaders, given that the idea of leadership is to establish a picture of a better tomorrow and bring others along with you to get there? I think that's beautifully said and asked, <laughs> and uh, which is why I think I use, I've started using mindfulness as a leadership development methodology for the last 10, 12 years, precisely because of this, because if we want to push people to a choice point, and we need to then find ways to um, build their capacity, right? And mindfulness, A, builds their capacity for resilience, uh, right? Because they, they, they definitely develop inner resources in handling some of these very jarring notions because sometimes we just don't recognize that like, wow, uh, I personally may not be a person that is say, for instance, like racist, uh, but I may be partaking um, and which is why I think for me that different identity systems very, become very important that, you know, like for instance, like you talked about the tribal one, like I've lived in uh, rural Midwest, I have lived in the East Coast, I've lived in the West Coast. And, and, and I think one of the things with, uh, you know, in the current political climate and things like that is that many of them are not necessarily interpersonally racist. And it's not just that every one of them is like treating every person that is different badly. Actually, that's not true. Um, But uh, it's this understanding that interpersonal is different from tribal, which means like sometimes that we may be operating from those tribal identity systems completely being even unaware of it, right? I mean, there's a lot of work obviously done in the bias and the implicit bias and things like that, mm-hmm. uh, doing those work. And uh, so mindfulness really does help build the capacity and the inner resources be resilient while we are faced with some of these things that normally are, you know, uh, elicit some uh, negative emotions like guilt or shame, but sometimes so what- people are what would it what would it mean to be interpersonally open to differences in uh race gender the other dividing lines but in a in a tribal or communal sense to 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 not be so say for instance like you know i may have like i'm married to a white guy right and so interpersonally I'm okay with handling a person that's of a different race from a very different background from myself. Like my husband's like three quarters Czech, one quarter Irish, (laughs) Midwestern man grew up in Chicago and right. And so, uh, and, 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 but then he also comes from immigrant roots, like his grandparents are immigrants. So he has a much more nuanced understanding of what my mm-hmm. location is and what my life journey is because he's much more aware of his own ancestral mm-hmm. journey in very recent mm-hmm. past. And so interpersonally, it's easy to say, hey, you know, this is, we can, we can, we can kind of like transcend some of these differences. Yet at the same time, even for me to sometimes, like I would say things like to him, um, mm-hmm. if I'm trying to explain my family dynamics, right? There's a lot of translation that happens when you come from different tribes. And, uh, you know, and I would be like, so why are we not like in touch with your cousins? Why are we not like, you know, taking it whatever, right? And, and so I would, so sometimes like I would say things like, uh, well, you know, you know how we are, we don't work like white people. <laughs> so what I'm saying is that it's a kind of like a short, uh, you know, shorthand code for, indicating but that is also mm. a, a divisive so because these are difficult conversations to have wait so are you in touch with your cousins or not Lata? 
I am actually. <laughs> but your husband is not in touch with his cousins. So what's his problem? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> hey, let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman, and I'm speaking with management and social justice thought leader, Latha Punamali, about her wonderful new book. It's called Expansive Leadership, Cultivating Mindfulness to Lead Self and Others in a Changing World. Uh, there, there's so much in here, and we, we only have a few minutes left, Latha. Um, I'm, I'm rem- remembering the story you told at the top of our conversation about when you got rejected from that job in the dentist's office because you were emotionally, uh, what was the word that you used? You weren't, you were not yet late developed bloomer. or uh, late bloomer, late bloomer. So what would happen if you were applying for that job now? What would you tell the dentist about what you would be doing uh, with the person who came in with severe pain? What would you say? I would probably, uh, you know, tell the patient, hang on a second, I'm going to check with the dentist and find a spot to get to in as quickly as possible. All right. So, and you probably would have gotten the job. I think so. <laughs> so, so maybe now you're finally ready for that dentist assistance job, Latha. I know. I know. Okay. I'm so glad about it. Actually, well, it's it's never too late, right? Uh, that's part of part of the approach of. Uh, of growth through greater awareness of who we are and, and, and our place in the world allows us to change and, and to, uh, to express a kind of grace, uh, to use a term you used earlier, uh, towards ourselves and, and towards others around us. So, so you've developed less, less of a legalistic justice oriented, you know, you have to wait your term in your turn in line to, uh, to a, an approach that is more about the human suffering and a, and a keener awareness of, of what you can do to try to alleviate it. Is that, is that a fair summary of, of, of uh, one aspect of how you have changed personally? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, this is, uh, yeah, please. No, no, no. Finish your thought on that. And then I have another question about that. And this I think the critical piece, right? Like, you know, how do we do justice work with compassion? Right. And grace. And that, Um, so where is it that people find the greatest difficulty in coming to that kind of awareness through the work that you help them to do? Where do they resist? What is the most painful? What, where do they defend and say no, or just, you know, shut down or don't do the work? Yeah, no, I think um, uh, the easiest entry is in personal development, uh, which is that, you know, I want to be a better person or I want to be more effective and I want to be a more effective leader. And the real point of resistance is, is actually shame and guilt. Because I believe, uh, I'm an optimist, actually, interestingly, for someone that is so critical and justice-oriented. I'm an optimist when it comes to individuals. And I am much more, uh, you know, I was very active in the critical management studies division in the academy. And um, I'm much more of a, not a pessimist, but a realist when it comes to organizations. And I think the minute the organizations come at play, and which means that there are more people, there are power dynamics, there are resources to be shared, I think there are a lot of walls that go up. But at individual level, I think people do want to change. People want to get better. People want to be good human beings for most part and, and, and be good people. And, and so, I, the, but the, the fallout of this is like, if you have to face it, you have to face that maybe, like I said, there is always like some kind of a shame or some kind of a guilt or some kind of a rage and anger. I mean, these are the spaces that then you become stuck uh, to move forward because then uh, from when you're operating from a tribal mentality, then it becomes your truth versus my truth. And, and I think we need leaders who can actually lead beyond the tribe and, and, and to cultivate that capacity we need to have um, some degree of humanity 
that accepting that, look, you know what, like I may have been benefiting or I may have been, uh, uh, you know, um, kind of um, taking on the victim role uh, in a way that's not serving me well. Uh, right. And so how do we actually move past that? And I think these these negative emotions and they have to deal with that. And that is where I think that mindfulness, especially I find like self-compassion oriented mindfulness and uh, compassion oriented mindfulness practices help us accept that. Look, you know what? Like I'm human. That means like I sometimes make mistakes, but I have to then grant the same humanity to the other person that other person can also make some mistakes. But we are all in it together and struggling and learning to grow because this is difficult. We've never been less tribal as the world like we are right now, more global and less tribal ever in the history of humanity. And so that's a new space uh, that we are learning to deal with as a species while we're also trying to also deal with interspecies and the planetary well-being. I'm just pausing there because I'm contemplating that reality uh, and I'm a little struck, stuck for words because that's that's so big. Um, I want to bring it down here in just a couple minutes we have left to uh, to what you're hoping readers will take away from expansive leadership. What's the main thing that you want them to 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 gain, to to achieve, to 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 change? To just think of your role and your identity a little more broadly. And that's the first step. Mm. A little more broadly in terms of how you uh, define your relationship with others, how you define your relationship with the world we live in, and how you define your role. Uh, That if, you know, we all have whatever, like sales targets and bottom lines Mm -hmm. and things that we need to be making. But if you take a longer arc of time perspective, um, these are like really small things. And I don't mean to say mm-hmm. that I, you know, that there are pragmatic considerations. We all have mortgages. We all have kids to send to college. We all have like a lot of pressure that like, I'm not like denying any of those things, but trying to make that space of uh, oasis in your own place because you walk differently, Mm. that you make decisions differently uh, in the given space. And I think that is how change happens that, uh, and and, on that note, like I'm kind of like launching a pilot program called C-Suite for Justice this summer, uh, which is like a handful of, uh, you know, C-Suite executives and incumbents where I will learn more in terms of like, hey, you know, if these are the most powerful people in their organizations, and how do they make change happen in a way that they can be uh, agents of uh, justice, that we can build a better world? And how do we do that? And so for which I think we need to take responsibility for the world, not just for ourselves. Can you give me a 30-second version of how InMed Prognostics is doing that, your startup? Uh, Absolutely. And we are the first company uh, in the neuro um, analysis to actually do uh, baseline data that is not just Caucasian, <laughs> as oh. we know, which is like 80% of the products are developed for 20% of the world, and the rest of the 80% of the world just has to make do with whatever is developed. And whereas, like, you know, for us, that these spaces uh, in terms of uh, emerging markets um, is not an afterthought. Uh, to just sell the product, but uh, it is uh, the kind of like the seed of the whole company. And um, so so that's what we do. We do neuro assessment. We make medical healthcare uh, tools, uh, which are state-of-the-art artificial intelligence-based tools, accessible and affordable for everybody. Amazing. And that includes broadening participation, uh, even in developed countries. Latha, we are uh, now at the end of our conversation. I'm sad to say because there's so much more I want to discover about uh, your uh, remarkable array of of work. Um, But uh, let me just ask you to uh, tell us how can listeners find out more about the work that you are doing? Uh, You can visit my website, which is very uh, uh, unattractive. (laughs) 
Visit your unattractive website. Really? Okay. How, how, would, how would people do that? Where? It's, it's latapunamali.com or you can find me on LinkedIn and I do share uh, many of these things and you can buy my book on Amazon uh, for a Kindle version they have uh, at a good discount or you can go to the, uh, you know, just Google expansive leadership Routledge. That's my publisher. Routledge. Mm-hmm. And, and you can, uh, you know, use the code Fly twenty one F L Y twenty one. Okay, which gives you a twenty percent discount All and right. ship free globally. Wonderful! It's Latha Punamali. That's L A T H A P O O N A M A L L E E. Latha, thank you so much for the work that you're doing and for taking the time to share your story. Uh, and your insights and your uh, methods with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was, it was my pleasure. And uh, keep going. And, and uh, we'll have you back here to talk more about your progress in, uh, in the days to come. Um, thank you again. And thank you for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern. If if you have any questions about something you heard on the show today, something that you didn't agree with, something that you really felt strongly about in a good way, anything. I'm interested in hearing from you at friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. Our station is at business radio at SiriusXM.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM business. I'm at Stu Friedman, and you can find uh, edited versions of these shows as free podcasts at totalleadership.org, where there's all kinds of free resources, videos, book chapters, articles, all kinds of stuff about how we help people in organizations find harmony and better performance in all parts of life. And again, let me remind you about our new audio course. It's uh, based on Total Leadership called Four Way Wins on Himalaya Learning. That's an audio learning platform with a big library of amazing courses. You can listen to this course and others like it at Himalaya.com slash wins. Enter the promo code wins at checkout. Get our, your first 14 days free. And so I hope to see you there. Thanks to uh, my sound engineer, Chris Tooks, producer Patty Hall, as well as her stand-in for today's taping. It's Matt Datz. Thank you, Matt. I'm Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.